So when you get people that have overcome and driven transformations before and been through really hard things before, they're much more likely to be able to believe it's possible. And if you don't use hindsight, you're missing out. And there's always something you could be doing better. But if you go a couple months and you recognize like you haven't done anything uncomfortable in your job or at your company, it's time to take a look. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon. Without further ado, here's today's episode. On today's episode of Founder Real Talk, I'm thrilled to welcome longtime friend of GGV, Susan St. Ledger. Susan most recently spent four and a half years at Splunk as the president of Worldwide Field Operations, where she built a SaaS multi-product go-to-market organization and helped grow the business from nearly $700 million in revenue when she joined to almost $2.5 billion today. Previously, she spent more than 11 years at Salesforce in a number of leadership positions, most recently as CRO, Chief Revenue Officer of the Marketing Cloud. And prior to Salesforce, Susan was at Sun Microsystems, first as a systems engineer, and she left as vice president of a global sales organization. Susan also recently announced her departure from Splunk and shared the exciting news that she's joining Okta as president of worldwide field operations, and that's going to happen real shortly. I'm also personally very lucky to work with Susan on the HashiCorp Board of Directors, where Susan serves as an independent director, and I can I can vouch that she's adding a ton of value. I know she can impart uh, similar wisdom regarding all things go-to-market, growth, and company building on us all here on Founder Real Talk. So I'm super grateful to have her on the show today. Susan, welcome to Founder Real Talk. Thank you so much, Glenn. I'm thrilled to be here. Great. So I wanted to start maybe just asking you a little bit about your own career path. You've had a very diverse set of roles within different organizations. You've run an array of functions, led teams of all sizes, and you've spoken openly in the past about the importance of having a growth mindset to not not only not fear, but even seek out pivots in your own career. Maybe you could elaborate on that for us. What do you mean by pivots in your career and why should we be embracing them? Sure, Glenn. You know, I think it stems from my background raised by my parents. My dad, I always say, taught me to be a student for life. He was a teacher and his concept was that you're learning forever. And school was just to teach you how to learn. And then you're going to be a learner for the rest of your life. And my mom taught me to be a student of life, which is you learn from your experiences too. It's not just about the books. And so I'm a lifelong learner and that's really what it comes down to. I think I'm just incredibly intellectually curious And so if you look at my career, as you said, it's a variety of functions, starting in engineering, at one point running the services side of business, certainly most of my career in sales, and just running all those different functions, those are different pivots, right? So pivots can be anything from changing companies to changing functions, you know, or or your role within a particular organization. And I think it's just my raw intellectual curiosity that was really what drove me to do that throughout my career. And it's clear that who you learn from is a vital element of your success. You've learned from in different avenues in your life. You were athlete growing up and just curious like what lessons you may have learned from that part of your life and if if that's something you seek out in others that you want to work with. Absolutely. I think whenever you're looking at an opportunity career-wise, the two most important things are who you learn from and the market opportunity. 
And, you know, I've been incredibly fortunate in the who I learned from category. At one point, I got to be the chief of staff for the president and CEO at Sun Microsystems, Scott McNeely and Ed Zander. And then, of course, I had the incredible privilege of working for Mark Benioff for almost 12 years. And so I just consider those incredible gifts in terms of some of the people that I've learned from. Really, what it comes down to, I tie back to being an athlete. It was always your toughest coaches that made you better. Mm-hmm. And it was always your toughest leaders that you work for that made you better. And there's something inherent in human nature that requires somebody else to push you if you want to get beyond your, your natural limits. And that's what those people did for me. Very cool. You started your career in engineering. I'm curious, what sparked your own interest in computer science and what prompted you to transition your career to more customer-facing roles? Sure. Started in engineering. I was just a math science person my whole life. That was my love in, in school. It was all about math and science. Unfortunately, my dad was a history teacher, and I used to tell him how much I hated history. <laughs> you and me both. You and me both. <laughs> and so I actually started as a biology major, and after I took my first computer science course, I switched to computer science which obviously looks like a brilliant move now. But back then, Silicon Valley was not something anybody had ever heard of. There's some element of luck in that for sure. In terms of transitioning to customer-facing role, there were really two things that triggered it. You know, I was a hardcore software engineer at NSA. But what I loved most was when I completed a project and had to go present it, right, and talk about the technology. I found that was actually the part I loved the most, even more so than actually creating and developing the the applications themselves. Mm -hmm. And then also, we had systems engineers from companies coming in to present to us to try and sell to us. And I'm like, that looks really cool. I could do that. So that's really what led to it. Interesting. I'd forgotten that the NSA was the first stop in your career. That is badass. That that must have been really cool. (laughs) It was pretty cool. It was pretty cool. Definitely worked on some mission critical things that made any other level of stress further in my career look like nothing. So Got it. One quote I've heard you say is, luck is where opportunity meets preparedness. Absolutely. How has that served you? And particularly like in the moment where you decided to move from a technical role to a more of a customer facing role. Do you feel like that rang true at that point? It definitely rang true at that point, but probably the greatest example that I have is luck is where opportunity meets preparedness is when I got the opportunity to be the chief of staff. So they basically looked at the top 10 high potential directors in the company and we all interviewed for it. I felt like really what was lucky was I had just moved out to California a little bit about a year before that. So I got a lot of visibility after I moved out to California with Sun Microsystems and that kind of got me on the docket. And then my preparedness is what actually helped me get that job. Great. So now we're going to fast forward to present day and you've now for Splunk and soon for Okta holding incredibly important roles in an organization, really leading all field operations for big companies. And so you're in an interesting vantage point. Many of the listeners to this show are entrepreneurs, folks who plan to start companies in the future and execs at high growth companies. So they have lots of questions about leadership, hiring, building teams, motivating people. And I want to dig into some of that now. One big challenge that a lot of startups confront is when hiring a senior exec, they want that exec to onboard successfully. You're about to onboard at Okta in the not too distant future. Curious, like how you think about the first 90 days 
as a senior exec in an organization and what that can teach folks who are hiring in execs themselves into their startups? The first thing that I would say is I'm going to go in and do a lot of listening, you know, make sure that I don't jump to my way, (laughs) try and understand why things are the way they are. So do a lot of listening. The second thing I'll say is one of the learnings I had when I came in as CRO and a year later became president at Splunk was that I was having a really hard time getting people to give me feedback or to talk to me about hard things, to tell me the hard truth about things. And it was really interesting because I never had that problem at Salesforce. And I work with an exec coach by the name of Liz Weissman, who's fantastic. And she was helping me break it down. And she said, well, the net of it is you grew up with Salesforce, right? You were there when it was a little over hundred million. You were there when it hit eight and a half billion. You were a known quantity for many, many years and had many years to establish that. She said at Splunk, you came in at the very top and you had to come in to drive a very hard transformation, right? To go from on-prem software to being subscription and cloud. And she said, and most people didn't know that they wanted that or or that it was going to be good for the company or the customer. And so you came in at a very difficult place. And so I had to work extra hard to create a safe environment for feedback. And so that's my number one goal when I get to Okta is to make sure that I establish that safe environment for feedback very quickly, understanding that when you come in as president, it's very different than being an SVP as I was when I started at Salesforce. So let's say you're a startup founder and CEO of a company, you're bringing in, you've got a small marketing team or a small sales team, you're making great strides as a business, and now you're going to bring in a VP to run one of those organizations. How do you make sure, A, you're hiring somebody who is a listener and is going to lean into that part of the job? That's one. Two, how do you make sure that the team feels safe in terms of telling that new exec what's really going on and what are the issues? What are the opportunities so that exec can really pot and sprout roots and, and get going quickly? The first thing I would say is when you're selecting the executive you're going to bring in, make sure that it's somebody with a growth mindset. And the way that I, I have three principles for a growth mindset, it's somebody who is a lifelong learner, always learning and can demonstrate that. Somebody who is focused on continuous improvement, which is no matter how well you do. And this is something that we did at such extremes at Salesforce, which is we celebrated at the end of every quarter. And then the next week or the following week, whenever the management meeting was, if that was your only lens was that meeting, you would think we were the worst performing company on the face of the earth because all we did was focus on what we needed to do better. And so that mindset of continuous improvement is so important. And that doesn't mean you dismiss all the wins, you celebrate them, but then you move on because hindsight's 2020. And if you don't use hindsight, you're missing out and there's always something you could be doing better. Yep. So that's continuous improvement. And then the third one is somebody who's comfortable being uncomfortable. Those to me are the three principles of a growth mindset. And so if you have somebody who thinks like that, they're going to be much more open and not as set in their ways. And so they're going to come in with an idea of embracing the good and, and being able to improve what needs to be improved. That's probably the best advice I would give. And how about to folks who are on a team where a new leader is coming in? How do you get them prepped and ready so that new leader can really integrate quickly? Ideally, 
the leader comes in and, and holds sessions where people get just ask them anything, right? Whether mm-hmm. it's one-on-ones for the directs or a larger fireside chat, we have a forum that we use at Splunk where we say, we call it ask me anythings. And so we, we just do all hands and we let people ask anything. And I think the faster you can develop a transparency to the culture and even when you have to discuss the hard stuff, just make sure that you're really transparent. I think that is a dynamic that sets everybody up for success. Very cool. So taking a step back, another key challenge point that a lot of founders have is when they're hiring execs into a company, it's a nervous time for founders because in most cases, they've put a lot on their own shoulders. And while that's difficult, at least they own it. And so they know every nook and cranny of the business and kind of live or die by each success in each function. But obviously that doesn't scale. And so the best founders with whom we work and many who listen to this podcast are growing their companies and they're bringing on senior execs. Yeah, that is a scary moment because if you make a mistake, it can be very costly. And so making sure you hire the right people is definitely high on everybody's list. Curious, like you've done a lot of team building in your day. Could you give us some examples of You've talked about the importance of the growth mindset, and I'm sure you're testing for that. What are some of the questions you like to use in interviews that you feel like have served you well and helped separate great hires from not so great? Absolutely. So, you know, you talk about a growth mindset and learning. And so one of the things that I like to do is to ask people, what's the last thing that you had to learn and how did you go about learning it? And you'd be shocked at how many people will give you a 10-year-old example. (laughs) Remember, I just asked for the last major thing you had to learn and how you went about learning it. So that's, that's fascinating. Another one is that you need to make sure that you're very clear on prioritizing what you need at any point in time, right? So early on, you need a builder, right? So has somebody really demonstrated that they have built before? Because building something is one thing. Maybe fixing something is another, driving transformation is another, and scaling is another. And ideally, you find a candidate who's done all of those, but really understanding how you prioritize those and what's most important to you and then digging into that is very, very important from my perspective. And then I would also say, make them demonstrate followership. How many times have they changed jobs where people that they managed wanted to go with them? When you do references on people, do you talk to, I'm sure you talk to folks who were their bosses, their superiors. Do you talk to folks who were their peers or folks who reported to them? Absolutely. We want that 360 degree view. And quite frankly, that includes customers too in a B2B environment. In a B2C, it's a little bit trickier, but in a B2B environment, we absolutely require customer references because as I'm hiring and senior executives, I want to know that they have those relationships, they have a network, and they know how to build and establish rapport at the exec levels. That is awesome. Without incriminating yourself or anybody else, can you give us an example of something you heard in a reference call, either from 360 or a customer that was surprising to you and helped you avoid a mistake? Sure. (laughs) I mean, I out and out ask them, from your vantage point, is this best-in-class person and would you hire them? If you had a a position that was open like this, would you hire them? And most people give you references that are going to say good things about them. 
that's one where sometimes you'll get people telling you the truth. But what I would say, Glenn, is the trick to doing reference calls is actually different than that. The trick to doing reference calls is how impressed with you are the person that is the reference, Mm -hmm. right? So is that person somebody that you can tell is really sharp, that you think has a great business mind, that you think knows what they're doing, right? Because you generally have a conversation back and forth. If they give you really impressive references and those references say great things, then that's a great sign. But if you're not impressed with the references they used, it probably means that they're not connected to the Exactly. So to me, that's the trick about everybody's like, well, why do you do references? Because they're only going to give you people that say good things. But to me, when I do a reference, I'm looking at how impressed am I with that person? That's the reference. I think that's a great point about like how strong are the references that somebody gives as an indicator of whether they'd be a good addition to the team. When I do talk to references, particularly for senior roles, I ask the person, would you come work for this company if the person we're referencing joins? Like, is that a strong enough signal for you? Because that, at the end of the day, is, I think, what you're really hoping to hear, right? Is, yeah, I'd follow I'd follow this person. It gets back to followership, for yeah, sure. They, they used to work for me. I'd go work for them. Like, are they that good? That's great. That's a good one. Awesome. Let's talk a little bit about some of the experience you had at Splunk. And building on this this motif of kind of builder versus fixer versus scaler, at Splunk, you helped engineer a real significant change in the go-to-market from on-premise to cloud, from license to subscription. Like, what did you learn from that experience? Because that, that must have been hard. What did you learn about yourself and also a little bit about the types of people you need to have on board when you're making that kind of shift? Yeah, so it was the hardest thing I've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> I've been very fortunate that we built a great team and we were able to to make it happen. And as you said, we've been very successful from about 700 million to almost two and a half billion. So it's been a, a great run. It again, ties back to the growth mindset. You need people who are so resilient because it was a significant transformation, right? And you're transforming everything from what you're selling to how you're selling it. You're transforming the internal systems, you're transforming just every aspect of the business. And meanwhile, trying to figure out how to make the street understand it. (laughs) And so in the end, it really, you need people who are incredibly resilient. Mm -hmm. And what we used to talk about every year at SKO was everything always looks harder in the windshield. Mm. And then when you take a look at the rear view mirror, it looks a whole lot easier because you now accomplished it. And so we always had this big part of our sales kickoff where we would show all of our results flashing by in the rear view mirror. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then we would talk about the daunting windshield that was in front of us and what we had to take on the next year. I always say that people's belief system comes from their experiences. So when you get people that have overcome and driven transformations before and been through really hard things before, they're much more likely to be able to believe it's possible. Mm. So people who've who've had to deal with change and maybe innovated in a tough circumstance in the past, good indicator that they'll do well in the future. Exactly. That that to me seems like a good metaphor for startup hiring as well, because startups almost by definition are going to take twists and turns along the way. If you hire a team that's kind of too set in its ways and folks that aren't as comfortable with shifting with the winds, you may get stuck. And we've seen that many times. Conversely, if you have somebody who is agile and able to kind of change direction quickly, take direction. But if it's changed direction, take the new direction quickly, that's a real asset in a startup. 
Absolutely, Gwen. And it ties back to that concept of pivots, right? So that's another thing you can do is look at their resume and see if there are any obvious pivots. If there are, the other question I'd like to ask is, what was the hardest of all of your pivots? Because you'll find resumes that are full of pivots and you'll find some that have no clear pivots, but asking somebody, what was the hardest pivot you made and why was it the hardest? That's another one that's great. But really it shows that people... Anybody who does pivots and does them successfully, that they're a learner and they're a good chance that they're going to be somebody that's good for a startup. You've talked about like the importance of pivots in your personal career. At Splunk, it was a company pivot. Like any similarities you see between like the personal pivot and the company pivot now that you've been through both? Absolutely. I I think people always ask, when should you pivot and why? <laughs> and the answer is when you no longer feel like you're challenged or growing. If, you, if you're really not uncomfortable, if you go, I don't know, there's no set period of time, but if you go a couple months and you recognize like you haven't done anything uncomfortable in your job or at your company, it's time to take a look, in my opinion, as long as you're somebody who wants to continually grow and continually be challenged. I love that. What a great philosophy for life. And for companies. Okay. Pardon the pun. I want to pivot a little bit and talk (laughs) about one thing that I know is important to you, which is diversity, equity, and inclusion. There's obviously a growing awareness and a real change in the tenor of the conversation in Silicon Valley uh, around this topic. It still feels like as an industry, we don't move fast enough. You've done an amazing job in this area. And I'm curious, like what your approach has been to increasing diversity in your companies in, in which you work and How are you thinking about that as you enter a new organization at Okta? So thanks for that, Glenn. We put a big focus on it at Splunk, and it was everything from making sure that our interview slates always had at least two diversity candidates on it. So that's one thing. We anonymized resumes as they were coming into recruiters. There are some very basic things that we did. But to your point about not moving fast enough as an industry, we're not, right? And I think if you look at what's happening, we were able to recruit some great women, top talent, but really all we're doing is taking it from other companies, right? Like we're all fighting with each other to get in it. And what we really need to do is take a step back and figure out how to solve it from a tech perspective much earlier, whether it's in middle school or even grade school. One of the things that I'm hopeful on and it's great that you use the word equity. I think we were all using the word equality before and the nuance being equity is access to opportunity. Mm-hmm. And what we know is that there are just too many people that don't have that access to opportunity. And if I look at, you know, so many of the tech companies being HQ'd in California, it's less likely to hire underrepresented minorities here. And so what I'm hoping with this COVID awareness that we now have is that we don't have to be as HQ centric moving forward. And we should be able to set up hubs and locations that we traditionally didn't think about with a specific purpose of recruiting underrepresented minorities. And that's something that I hope to focus on at Okta. Well, speaking of companies getting more distributed, more virtual in the days of COVID, um, so excited that you and I are getting to work closely together at HashiCorp which for listeners of the show know from the interviews that we've done with Dave and Mitchell and Armand in the past is a very distributed company. Absolutely. You joined the HashiCorp board now, I think a year plus ago. You haven't done a lot of boards. I know you've been asked many times and I'm sure happy that we won the Susan St. Ledger Derby to get you on the HashiCorp board. But um, curious like what you've learned from 
being on a board? Do you view that as kind of a pivot or a growth mindset kind of activity for yourself? Do you think other execs would benefit from joining boards? Yeah, maybe you could talk about that for us. Sure. I do consider it a major pivot. And, you know, I was open to it for theoretically for a while, but just too busy in my operating job to do it. So I finally, yeah. finally got the team built at Splunk and was able to do that. And I was very grateful when you reached out with HashiCorp. As you said, I had a lot of opportunities, but focusing on the same two criteria that I look at when I'm looking at an operating job, which is who am I going to learn from? Who are the people? And what is the market opportunity? And HashiCorp fit both of those. And Candidly speaking, I've learned a ton from you about compensation committee and how that actually works. Now I now I actually know what was being said about me in boardrooms and how all that was being figured out in the past. And uh, it's, it's a lot more complicated than I ever realized. That's that's for sure. So I'm learning a ton there. You know, I was fortunate to be the first independent director. And so just being on a board that was all VCs up until we fortunately just added Todd Ford as as our audit committee chair, but up until then it was all VCs. And so I was getting a very different lens on how companies are looked at versus an operating role. Yeah. Because my board is at Splunk that I interact with is mostly operators, right? There's only one one VC left on there. So it's a very different dynamic. And that's been super helpful to me. Cool. So there's at least some potential positives to hanging out with VCs. Not yeah, a lot. But so. there, there are. There are a few. <laughs> I'm feeling really good that you said you've learned anything from me because a lot on compensation. I'm sure that the the equation has been uh, unequal though. I've learned way more from you than you have from me. I'm sure of that. Speaking of like helping impart wisdom and mentorship, I'm sure you've been a mentor, whether formal or informal, to many people in your career, and you have to in your role as a, a leader in an organization. What's been your approach to mentorship and? From where have you looked for mentors for yourself? Getting back to the who you learn from, Glenn, I think the problem that when people think about mentorship, mentors are great for taking very specific questions or problems or decisions to to get help. And that's super important. But I think that if you really want a great career, you have to really think about your mentorship coming from who you interact with on a regular basis. And that's where, again, I've been very fortunate, but I'll point to Mark Benioff as the greatest gift of my career. Watching him go from vision to execution, he's a he's an incredible operator. His ability to put his finger on something and, and change it is amazing. But more importantly, when I talk about mindset, I think I've always had a growth mindset, but I think he took it to whole new levels. And not only did he take my mindset to whole new levels, but the way in which he did it for me and for others taught me how to do that. That I think is the greatest gift that I brought to Splunk, which is helping people believe and think bigger and and work with this concept of a growth mindset. And the reason I say that is, would Mark say he's my formal mentor? No, but obviously Mark and I have a very respectful relationship with each other and he's been great to me. And I learned so much from him, but I learned because I was interacting with him on a regular basis. And so you should always think about that in your career. It can't just be the mentor that you can call once a month. That's important. And I do, I still do a ton of that. And it makes me very proud. I actually had a, a girls weekend a couple of weekends ago up in Tahoe with three of my mentees who are now all CXOs. Oh, that's awesome. And we all worked together, one of them at Sun and Salesforce, the other two and at Salesforce. And they were all director level when they worked for me. And they're all CXOs now. And that makes me proud. As it should. You do want to find that. But you also 
remember there's also a difference between mentorship and sponsorship. You also need to find sponsors. You need to find people who are not only going to give you advice, but within your organization, you need sponsors who are going to be advocates for you. So all of those things matter. Mentorship is great. Sponsorship is better. Hmm. That's a great point. I'm not going to get all of them, but like between Scott McNeely and Ed Zander and Mark Benioff, Doug Merritt, now going to Okta with Todd, like, you know, if you want to say the CEOs, the leaders at the organizations with whom that you've operated in are all like really storied and successful. Curious, like, what do you look for in, in a leader? Anything else you'd add beyond what you mentioned about Mark Benioff that you found to be common traits in great leaders? So, you know, it's interesting in that founder CEOs aren't always the best CEOs, but at the same time, I've been fortunate in that all the founder CEOs that I've worked with have been. <laughs> so that's just the passion and commitment that they have. And that's, that's certainly part of the attraction with, with Todd and Okta. That's one aspect. But I, I think certainly the partnership that Doug offered me when I came into to Splunk was incredibly important and the partnership that we built and the way that we really ran things together was invaluable. So I think cultural fit and making sure that you have that connection and that you have the same values and alignment is, is also incredibly important. But in the end, what you want to see is you want to know that the CEO knows the next three steps, the next five steps that they can see around corners. Mm-hmm. To me, that's the most important thing. And, and quite frankly, that was, that was the hook that Todd got in my mouth when he put a, a vision paper in front of me as to where, where he needed to go and, and why he felt I was the right person to help get him there. Yeah. I often think that when we're evaluating potential founders in whom to invest in startups, like we need to feel like they're amazing salespeople. They have to sell, right? They have to, they're going to have to sell customers. They're going to have to sell partners. They're also going to have to sell great potential employees on coming to join and staying and getting everybody aligned around a vision and sell that vision. So I'd imagine that the the founder CEO who grows a company that large and lasts that long has got to be particularly good at it. No doubt. No doubt. That's great. So we've reached that time of the the episode for the speed round. So there's no pressure on you, but you're in the oh, hot no. seat. <laughs> oh no. Say the first thing that comes to mind. Now that you're not traveling around the world to meet customers, how have you been spending any of that time that you've gained back? So a lot more workouts again, which has been really nice. Peloton bike. And, All right. so, and um, that I had before COVID, but I've got, my use has gone up tremendously. Who's your favorite Peloton instructor? Robin. Robin Arzon. Robin. She's Robin's tough. my favorite. She's, she's good. I like her a lot. And then I recently got Tonal for my weight system. So the digital weight system, which is really awesome. So that, that's been really, really nice. Had opportunity to spend time with my family back east, went back there for a few months and, and hung out with my mom and, and my siblings. And, and so those are, and my nieces and nephews, of course, who are the most important people in my life. That's great. We're not investor in tonal, although I do hear good things about it, but thanks for the little Peloton plug uh, as a GGV's proud shareholder in Peloton. Uh, that's, and, that was a good call on that one. Yeah, that's certainly worked well in, uh, in the current climate that we're in. What about a favorite book that you recommend to folks that either that you work with or that you're uh, liaising with professionally? So I'll give you two. One's an oldie but a goodie, which is They Call Me Coach by John Wooden. Oh, yeah. I find that some of the greatest leadership lessons that I've learned have been studying coaches and 
and reading books from coaches. And John was just an absolute favorite of mine. I was fortunate enough to get to meet him when he was alive. And then the other one is The Multipliers. I mentioned Liz Weissman. She wrote that book and it was a book that we created a class out of years ago at Salesforce that still resonates with people. She has a revised version of the book that came out recently, but it's called The Multipliers. And it really is about leadership and talking about how if you're a leader that needs to be the smartest person in the room, you're a diminisher and you're going to shut people down. And so it really I see. talks about how to multiply the talent that you have and what the great characteristics are, but that no matter what a great leader you are, you're always going to have some diminishing characteristic and you have to be aware of it. So for me, my diminishing characteristic is I'm a pace setter, which means that sometimes I'm so far out in front that I've lapped people and I don't realize it. And so you can go a little too fast. So. What's the antidote for being a pace setter? How do you? <laughs> well, it's, do you... <laughs> it's being aware of it and checking in often, right? Checking in often, making sure people are understanding, aligned, on board, understand the why of what you're doing, and, and are really bought into it. You need buy-in before you can get people to run with you. Got it. Got it. I haven't read Multipliers, but that's going to be required reading over the holidays for me. And yeah, John Wooden, what an incredible coach! I've read a few books either about him or autobiography type books on, on John Wooden, and they've just been incredible. Wooden cared about the whole person, right? So not just about the player on the court and the winning, all of his kids graduated, right? All of his kids became successful in life because he cared about the whole person. And I think it's a great anecdote for what a real leader in a business looks like to make sure that you care fundamentally about your people beyond what they're doing for you at the company. Yeah. A little aside, when I was in college way back when, I actually got somehow managed to get an award, like a academic slash athletic award. I flew to like some NCAA big conference to accept the award. And Bill Walton, the center for UCLA during the John Wooden era, very successful and also successful in the NBA, gave me the award. He talked about John Wooden to me. That led me on a journey of reading a lot of his books. So highly recommend those. That's, uh, yeah, he's amazing. Okay, last question for you. What's the sport you wish you were professional in? Hands down, basketball. Did you play in high school or? I did, I did. Yep, I played in high school and then got recruited for both softball and basketball in college. Softball tryouts were first. We started the season and then I realized playing two sports was not going to be an easy thing to do as a computer science major. So I ended up not playing basketball, but yeah, it's an interesting, interesting. Uh, in fact, I, all right, quick, another quick story. So coach came at the end of freshman year, he came back to me and said, you're my missing shooting guard. Like we can win the national championship. You need to play with us next year. I didn't. He recruited as shooting guard and they won the national championship. Oh, which school was this? <laughs> D3. It was D3. University of Scranton. Okay. All right. Well, I missed out on a national championship. You right. may have missed out on a championship and not played above the rim in college, but you are playing above the rim now, Susan. Well, thanks. Exactly. This has been awesome. Great episode. So much to learn from you. Thanks for sharing. I know everyone's going to love listening to it. And I'm looking forward to uh, continuing our, our work together on the HashiCorp board. Thanks again. Thanks, Glenn. I am as well. Take care. Bye now. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. 
As a multi-stage, sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across consumer, social and internet, enterprise cloud, and frontier tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages $6.2 billion in capital across 13 funds. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Didi, Grab, Hellobike, HashiCorp, House, Keep, Namely, New, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, and many more. The firm has offices in Beijing, San Francisco, Shanghai, and Silicon Valley. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at, at GGV Capital or GGV Capital on WeChat. <laughs>